I have a question to start out this morning. How many of you are truck drivers? And I should clarify that. I, maybe no one. I should clarify that. I don't mean like you drive your jacked up uh, white Chevy truck or whatever it is. I mean, how many of you are like tractor trailer, 18 wheeler drivers? Anyone? A couple in here? Okay. I have tremendous respect for you guys um, and, and what you have to deal with on the road day in and day out. Uh, a little known fact about me although probably well-known among the youth group because I like to brag about it, is I actually have my Class A CDL. Uh, and in case you don't believe me, here's that, there's a picture to prove it. You can look at uh, everyone loves license photos. Uh, and in the bottom corner, right next to my name, uh, it says CDL. And then if you flip it around the back, uh, it would say Class A, which means I am legally allowed to go out on Route 30 this morning or any other road and drive an 18-wheeler. There's just one small problem with that. I've never, ever, ever driven an 18-wheeler in my life before. Never driven a tractor-trailer before. And so I don't know if that boosts your confidence in our Pennsylvania Department of Transportation. Uh, you can ask me later if you want maybe how I got it. But it was because I have my CDL that I ultimately found out I need glasses. Because uh, I like to keep my CDL renewed just in case Keystone decides to get a bus or an 18-wheeler to haul around the youth group in. And so every couple years, you have to get a physical uh, where a doctor essentially has to approve you and say, yes, you're still fit to have your CDL. Uh, luckily, they only ask what type of medications are you taking and not have you ever actually driven a tractor trailer? So I've been able to keep mine. Uh, but a couple years ago, I went to my CDL physical, and I kind of thought going into it that I might need glasses. Uh, the reason being, my wife and I, mainly I, uh, liked to play a game at that time called What's the Score? Where I would sit down, I would turn on the TV, turn to a sports game, and I would look kind of at that little box in the corner, and I would try to guess what the score is. And the game usually ended with me losing because my wife would say, no, that's wrong. You need to go get glasses. Stop asking me these questions. But, but I thought, you know what? Like, sixes look a lot like eights. At least when I write them, they do. Uh, and who hasn't confused a one for a zero at some point in their life? It's not that bad. It's not that bad. Well, the doctor informed me, no, it's really bad. Like, you, I'm not going to pass you. You are not fit to drive a truck, let alone probably even to be driving a car. Uh, and so I can remember, I went through all the process to get glasses, uh, and I still remember pulling out of Costco with my new glasses. Uh, also, the moment where I realized I'm no longer cool in life. Like, if someone asks you, where do you get your glasses? I got them at Costco. just kind of screams uncool. But I remember pulling out, and I remember just how incredible it was as I was driving. That I, I remember thinking, this is, this is like how I'm supposed to see? And I didn't realize how bad my eyesight really was because all of a sudden I could see road signs before I got like right up to them. I could see stop signs clearly before 30 feet in advance and everything seemed so clear. It's incredible, I think, what the right set of lenses can do for us what the right set of lenses can do for us. We all, I would say, have lenses that we look through to interpret life, interpret the world. And it's why people can look at certain things 
and see them in completely different ways. It's why some of you probably right now, you have maybe gardens at your home and you can look at a garden and you can think how great it is. I get to go work with my hands, be outside, see the fruit of my labor, enjoy fresh vegetables. And I look at a garden and I see weeds and I see time out of my air-conditioned home and I think I can just buy my vegetables at Aldi's. Why do I need a garden for them? See, we, we see things differently. We could go through all sorts of things like that. That's a small thing. One of the ways to think about Christianity is that it gives us a new lens to be able to look through and see life. There's a quote from uh, Leslie Newbigin. He puts it this way. The Christian story provides us with a set of lenses, not something for us to look at, but something for us to look through. I want to tweet that a little bit and say, yes, it is something for us to look at and to be amazed at, but it's also ultimately something for us to look through so that we see life and the world differently. I want to make the case this morning, that's not just a one-time thing like when we come to Christ, but this is a continual thing where growing as a Christian means that we learn to see more clearly. That's the big idea for this morning. And we're going to be looking uh, at a passage in 2 Kings, 2 Kings 8, or 2 Kings 6, 8 through 23. So you can turn there now if you'd like. Uh, I'm going to pray for us as we open up God's word again. Father, we look to you as the one who sees perfectly. You don't need a change in lenses. You don't need someone to help you see what you can't see. You see everything and you see it perfectly. God, help us to see more clearly this morning. Father, we look to you and I think of how uh, David says in the Psalms, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen wait in vain. I think a line could be added to that. Unless the Lord speaks, the preacher preaches in vain. And so I pray for you to move and to speak this morning in the way that I never possibly could. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, This is a short story we find in the ministry of Elisha as prophet in Israel. Uh, And so there's a couple different characters. Uh, One is the king of Aram. Uh, also, the king of Syria, it, the translation says Aram, but as I talk about him, I'm just going to say Syria because I think that's what we're more familiar with. Uh, Ben-Hadad. He's not named in the story, but we hear about him other places. Uh, there's also the king of Israel, Jehoram, the son of Ahab. Uh, again, not named in the story, but we hear about him other places. And then there's a servant of Elisha that's mentioned in uh, this story. And and what we need to know as kind of a background is at this time, Syria is kind of enemy number one for the northern kingdom of Israel. Think of, we're all kind of familiar with the Philistines probably in Saul and David's reign as king. Well, later on, think Syrians are kind of like the Philistines. They're the main enemy threatening Israel at this time. And so that's the background we need to know as we jump into verse 8. When the king of Aram was at war with Israel, he would confer with his officers and say, we will mobilize our forces at such and such a place. But immediately, Elisha, the man of God, would warn the king of Israel. 
Do not go near that place, for the Arameans are planning to mobilize their troops there. So the king of Israel would send word to the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he would be on the alert there. The king of Aram became very upset over this. He called his officers together and demanded, which of you is the traitor? Who has been informing the king of Israel of my plans? It's not us, my lord, the king, one of the officers replied. Elisha, the prophet in Israel, tells the king of Israel even the words you speak in the privacy of your bedroom. Go and find out where he is, the king commanded, so I can send troops to seize him. And the report came back. Elisha is at Dothan. So one night, the king of Aram sent a great army with many chariots and horses to surround the city. When the servant of the man of God got up early the next morning and went outside, there were troops, horses, and chariots everywhere. Oh, sir, sir, what will we do now? The young man cried to Elisha. Don't be afraid, Elisha told him, for there are more on our side than on theirs. Then Elisha prayed, oh, Lord, open his eyes and let him see. The Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. As the Aramean army advanced toward him, Elisha prayed, O Lord, please make them blind. So the Lord struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. Then Elisha went out and told them, You've come the wrong way. This isn't the right city. Follow me and I will take you to the man you're looking for. And he led them to the city of Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha prayed, O Lord, now open their eyes and let them see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they discovered that they were in the middle of Samaria. When the king of Israel saw them, he shouted to Elisha, My father, should I kill them? Should I kill them? Of course not, Elisha replied. Do we kill prisoners of war? Give them food and drink and send them home again to their master. So the king made a great feast for them and then sent them home to their master. After that, the Aramean raiders stayed away from the land of Israel. I want to walk back through this passage this morning uh, and just kind of see some of the things that we can observe and learn from this passage. Uh, We see from the start, uh, the king of Syria, the king of Aram, is uh, trying to covertly place groups of soldiers in Israel in hopes that he'll surprise them, catch them by surprise. Unfortunately, the king of Israel always seems one step ahead. And and the king of Syria kind of knows, okay, if this happened once, I could chalk it up to coincidence, but it's happening again and again and again. And so he comes to this conclusion. We've got a rat. We've got a rat. Like, Like any good, maybe mafia movie that you've seen, we've got someone who's informing on us on the inside, and we've got to figure out who it is, and we've got to make an example of them. And servants are right away, well, hold on a second. That's not quite right. We have someone who's informing on us, but it's Elisha, the prophet in Israel. King, he he knows what you say behind closed doors, and he goes and tells the king of Israel. Think about how incredible this is of what Elisha is is doing. Knows the words that are said behind closed doors. Just think about, like, think for a second. The NSA would love to have someone like Elisha on their team, or really any nation 
any security agency because we no longer have to listen to phone calls. We've got Elisha. He can just hear anything. Bill Belichick would pay anything to have Elisha on his staff. Right? I don't have to videotape other teams' practices anymore. I've got Elisha. Sorry if you're a Patriots fan. Uh, people would kill to have this guy. The king sees a problem. We've got to get rid of Elisha. We've got to get rid of him. We, we've got to go in, capture him, and, and either uh, seize him or kill him. The king never even stops to think, maybe Elisha isn't our problem. Maybe it's the God of Israel who sees everything and the one who's showing this to Elisha. Like he just thinks, we've got a problem, it's Elisha, we've got to get rid of him. Never even stops to think, maybe God's the one who's behind this. The king sees life and this situation completely disconnected from God. And I want to make just the first argument this morning, first point in some ways, that even as Christians, I think, we still have a tendency to see life disconnected from God. That's the, the first point this morning. That we have a tendency, we, we, we believe in God, we, we know the gospel, we can give you the right answers, but, but how often do I, how often do you go about day-to-day life and don't see any connection with God? Some people, uh, some Christians look at this and they, they refer to it as practical atheism. There's a quote I wanted to share with you. Uh, that puts it very well, I think. Christians, if we are honest, there are times when if we are not careful, we will live like fools, even when we say with our lips that God is there. When we live for ourselves, when we act as though we must solve all our problems, when we fail to trust God for our future, when we look for others to blame for our problems, when we act without prayer, We live as fools, as practical atheists. Think back to our story. How foolish does the king of Israel, or sorry, the king of Syria look? Maybe we didn't catch this when we read through it quick, but think about what he does. He finds out Elisha knows everything he's saying to his servants. And so what does he do? He says to his servants, go find him. Isn't Elisha going to, Hear that? What what about once he locates Elisha? We found him. Okay, here's the guy who knows all the movements of my troops. What am I going to do? Let's move troops to go get him. Isn't he going to know about that? And he has the, the great idea to let's sneak him in by cover of night so that they surprise Elisha. The king just looks like an absolute fool when we stop to think about it. And yet I, I say that and I wonder, how often do I look like a fool when I approach life disconnected from God? How do I look when life becomes all about me getting my way? How do I look when I see other people as just obstacles in the way of what I want? How do I look when I'm wronged and my only goal is to get back at the person who's wronged me? I look like an absolute, other people may not say, Kyle, you look like a fool, but in reality, that's what I look like in that moment. And and notice the king has this solution. Let's go get Elisha. And his solution actually makes things worse. 
what he does is sends a large portion of his army into what is essentially a trap that he could end up losing a large portion of his army by his foolishness. How often do our solutions, when they're done in our own wisdom, disconnected from any thought of what God's up to, just make things worse? I, I don't know about you, I, I grew up uh, watching Home Improvement. Uh, I'm sure some of you are familiar with it. And Tim the Toolman Taylor is infamous for making things worse with his solutions, right? Uh, the mower's broken, no problem. I can fix it and I can add 50 horsepower. This is gonna be great, right? Only to see things go awful later in the show. A, a more recent example is Michael Scott from The Office. Like he is just a case study in uh, when he tries to fix things, they get worse. Oh, someone's trying to hire, another branch is trying to hire one of my workers away. Let's go steal their copier. Oh, no one's taking safety training seriously enough. Let me rent a bounce house and I'll jump off the roof onto it. And really, you could probably take any comedy show you watch and there's that person in it who their solutions just make things worse. And we look at that and we laugh and we watch. And then I think again, how often when I'm acting in my own wisdom, disconnected from God, do my solutions just make things worse? Where is it in our lives right now that maybe we're seeing things disconnected from God? Maybe it's a specific person that we look at and all we see is a problem to be dealt with rather than someone made in the image of God to be loved. Maybe it is a conflict that's happening and we look and we think this is just an opportunity for my to, me to exert my will and show how right I am rather than an opportunity for me to show grace. Maybe I look at some difficulty in life, I'm facing some problem, some issue, and I think I can overcome it, I can change it when really it should be an opportunity for me to see my weakness and rely on God. Where, where are we seeing life disconnected from God? The, the, the king doesn't see clearly, and so he proceeds with his plans and ultimately surrounds Elisha in Dotham. The next morning, Elisha's servant wakes up and walks out for his morning coffee, and he sees soldiers everywhere everywhere, horses, chariots, all over the place. And he has the same reaction I would have had in that situation. I run inside to Elisha. Elisha, we're done for. We're surrounded. We've got no escape. What are we supposed to do? And Elisha walks out, sees the situation, says, don't be afraid. In the New Living Translation, it says, uh, for there are more on our side than on theirs. I like how the ESV puts it a little bit more. Those who are for us are more than those who are against us. That's what he says there. What a great line. Every movie, every story, every great book read has a couple great lines in it that stick out. If you say them, you immediately know. This is, I think, that one line from this story, as well as a line that's going to be brought up again and again throughout the Bible. It echoes Romans 8, 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? It echoes 1 John 4, 4. For he who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. Those who are on our side are more than those who are against us. And then Elisha prays for his servant. 
And all of a sudden, his servant looks back up, and the scene looks a little different. The Syrians are still there. The horses, the chariots are still there. But all of a sudden, he sees something different. There's more horses, more chariots, more soldiers, uh, horses and chariots of fire, and they're protecting them. The fog's lifted. The clouds have cleared. And he can see clearly what's actually happening in the situation. The, the point I, I want to make from this uh, is simply God opens our eyes to see clearly. God opens our eyes to see clearly. And then I, I want us to actually see, I think this passage kind of lays out a framework for how he sometimes does that, how he helps us to grow to be able to see more clearly. I think we, we know this for someone who's maybe not a Christian because we've heard things like 1 Corinthians 4, uh, 4 through 6. Uh, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. But for God, who said, let light shine, darkness has shown into our hearts to give us the light of knowledge of Christ. God has to open our eyes to be able to see. But just a couple verses before this, we find out that as Christians, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. That God changes our sight, not just one time, but it's an ongoing process as Christians, helping us to see more clearly. I think there's kind of a, a pattern in this passage for how he often does that or what he uses to do that. The first thing we see is that God uses his word to help us see clearly. I'm talking about the passage that we read in 2 Kings. God uses his word to help us see clearly. It, Elisha is a prophet at this time. And so when people look at Elisha, when they hear him speak, they think he's speaking the words of God. And so when Elisha says, there are more for us than those who are against us, that's God's word in this moment. That God uses his word to help us to see clearly. Last week, Pastor Keith talked about the authority of God's word. That, that when we have contradicting opinions and, and the world says one thing or we're tempted to believe one thing and God's word says another, we submit to God's word because that is our final authority. And that means that's also our lens to be able to see all of life clearly. It's our lens to be able to make sense of the world, of culture, of all that's happening. One of my favorite quotes, I think I've said this before from up here, but is by a guy named Karl Barth. He said, we should read our Bibles and our newspapers, but we should interpret our newspapers from the Bible. And I think you can put anything in there for newspaper. Watch the news, watch Netflix, listen to music, read a book. We should interpret what it says through the lens of our Bible. Not just looking at the world, but also looking at our own lives. How quickly can God's word change our perspective on something? I think this week, for me to get up in front and speak to you guys is still intimidating and causes me fear at times. And I can get anxious and worried and oh, what's going to happen? And then God draws to mind Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will help you. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you. Oh, that's right. God has this. Like how quickly God's word is able to change sometimes. And sometimes it doesn't happen all of a sudden. Sometimes it takes time and it's all we can do to kind of believe it and grasp onto it in the midst of our circumstances or situations. I think that's why I see the second thing in here as well that's important. God uses other people to help us see clearly. Right? He uses Elisha to help his servant see the truth. How much do we need other people to help us see clearly when we're not seeing clearly. 
When I was younger, my family would go camping a lot. All our family vacations were often us going camping for a weekend or a week, something like that. And one time we were camping and we drove out to uh, a local park to play some baseball, play on the playground, uh, and we were just getting ready to leave to head back to our campsite. And everyone's kind of headed towards the car. And at that time, uh, I looked across the field, kind of 100 yards, and at, at the kind of edge of the woods, I saw a dog. And what you have to know about me is that I love dogs. I love dogs. I think they're like one of the greatest uh, foretastes of the new heavens and the new earth that we get here now. Like, I love dogs. Just as I think cats are given to remind us how much sin has messed up this world. So, but, but I love dogs. And so I see this dog and I start moving towards it. And I forget if I'm walking or running, but luckily someone else saw me and caught up to me and grabbed me. Because what I was seeing wasn't a dog at all. It was actually a bear. And I was headed straight towards it. Turns out I needed glasses far earlier than like two years ago, right? Uh, but someone else had to get up to me and say, no, what you're seeing isn't right. You're not seeing clearly and, and turn me around. How often do we need other people to help us see clearly? That maybe we're not seeing sin and temptation in the way that we should and someone else has to help us see the danger of it. That maybe life is just we're fearful, we're anxious and we need someone else to remind us God is in control that we're overwhelmed or we're confused, that we're just questioning our value and worth and we need someone to remind us of the truth. I think of, Pastor Charlie is great at this, I think, uh, because I, I might see a certain situation or circumstance and my first thought is, oh my goodness, I can't believe that happened. What are we supposed to do about it? And Charlie, in no uncertain words, essentially says, I can't believe that happened. God is at work. What a different way to see something than what am I supposed to do? God is at work. And how often I need to be reminded of that. Sometimes maybe we just need someone to pray for us. That, that what we're going through, we know the truth already, but it's not sinking in for some reason. And we just need someone to listen to us and then pray over us the truth we already know. I've seen that happen for myself numerous times where that then opens my eyes to see clearly. And then, then the third thing is obviously it's God who enables us to see, right? Elisha can describe the scene to his servant, but it's not until he prays for him and God opens his eyes that the servant actually sees the truth. I think of it for us. We, we need to be reminded. We speak the truth to other people, whether Christians or non-Christians, and then we pray desperately for God to open their eyes to see clearly. This is why I think as well, when we open up our Bibles or, or we come to a church service, one of the greatest things we can pray to God is what David said in Psalm 119, open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your law. God, I can't see on my own. Open my eyes that I can see. It's God who enables us to see. The, the story doesn't end with the servant uh, ultimately having his eyes open though. It continues on and it ends in kind of a shocking way. Uh, the army advances on Elisha and his servant to take him captive. Uh, Elisha calls out for God to blind them. Uh, and then something kind of embarrassing happens. This group of men has to ask someone for directions, right? Always a little embarrassing when men have to ask for directions. 
much worse when they're asking the guy that they're supposed to be capturing. But Elisha's like, yeah, I can tell you where we're going. Let me lead you. Leads him straight to Samaria and the king of Israel's doorstep. And the king of Israel has this response that I would. Here's my enemy, hand-wrapped and delivered. Should I kill him? Should I get rid of him? No. Elisha says, no, no, no. You, you wouldn't kill someone you captured by your sword, would you? Okay, well, well, should we at least keep them and use them as a bargaining chip? Because we're kind of in a war here. Maybe we can get something else in return. No. Throw them a party and send them home. I imagine the king's jaw just dropping to the floor there. Elisha, clearly you don't grasp this whole war thing because you don't capture your enemies to wine them and dine them and send them home. What are you doing? What is happening in this story? Service, this doesn't make sense. And I, I think what we're getting a glimpse of here is at this moment, this story is directing our attention forward. Because where else do we find that there are enemies of God who deserve to die and instead he treats them to a feast? It's in the gospel. That's where God takes men and women like me, who are his enemies, who deserves to die, and instead saves them and then invites them into a feast that's ultimately going to happen in a new heaven and new earth. And how does that happen? How does it happen? Well, I, I love how this passage kind of in some ways foreshadows Matthew 26. I think I have it up there next. Uh, that a hundred years or several hundred years later, there's going to be another prophet who stands surrounded by his enemies in a garden. And one of his servants takes out a sword and tries to fight back. And this prophet says, no, 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 no. Put your sword away. In this moment, I could call down tens of thousands of angels with the snap of my finger. But then how would scripture be fulfilled? And instead, this prophet Jesus, instead of blinding his enemies, dies to save them and open their eyes. Incredible is that. That if I grasp someone died to, change, to save me and open my eyes, that should change the way that I see all of life. And that's the last point, a point you've heard before, I think, and are familiar with some ways, but the gospel changes how we see all of life. In the 1960s, uh, the U.S. was determined to put a man on the moon. And some of you probably uh, actually watched this happen when it eventually happened. But I, I love reading and hearing the stories about this time of just all the sacrifices and the risks and, and everything that went into trying to put a man on the moon. I read a book last summer uh, called Rocket Men about, I think it was Apollo 8, the first mission to actually orbit the moon. And one of the things they talked about is one of the very real fears uh, as they thought about how wrong things could go uh, if they failed was that they might end up up there orbiting the moon and not be able to get back into Earth's orbit because it was very precise what you had to do. And they might be stuck without a fuel and end up dying up there. Or when a man went up to land on the moon, what if we get him down there and he dies? And the fear was, kind of realistically, 
we might change how people view the moon forever. Because when people look up at the moon in the night sky now, they're going to be reminded someone died up there. And maybe no longer it's going to be simply wonder how, like, someone died up there, and it's going to change the way that people maybe forever view the moon. When we grasp the gospel that someone gave up his life, not just give up, lived, died, and was raised to save me, his enemy, it should change forever the way I see. It should change how I think about God. It should change how I view life. I think of just some examples. When I'm pessimistic and cynical about life, which sadly happens too often, and then I'm reminded if God could save someone like me, he could do anything. And if I don't believe that, I don't realize how lost and messed up I was. When I'm self-righteous and judgmental and thinking I'm better than other people, what's the gospel say? No, the grace of God is the only thing that you have to boast in. When I view a situation as hopeless and life just seems overwhelming and hopeless, I'm reminded I have a living hope in Christ Jesus that will never be taken away from me. When life just feels overwhelming, I'm reminded he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. If God is for me, who can be against us? Those who are for us are more than those who are against us. I want to close this morning with just really two questions for us to think about. The, the first one is, uh, where in your life do you need God to open your eyes to see differently? Maybe you've never, maybe you're here this morning, you've never actually grasped the gospel and never grasped God's grace and never understood why it matters that Christ died for you. Maybe you just need to call it, God, open my eyes and help me to see this for the first time. Maybe you're like me and you just have a tendency to view certain areas of life disconnected from God and you seem to call out to God, God, help me to see this person. Help me to see this circumstance. Help me to see this relationship in light of you and what you're doing and how you're at work. Maybe you just need to uh, pull someone aside and honestly say, hey, here's what's really happening right now in my life. Can you just pray for me to be able to see clearly in the midst of it? And then the, the second question I want to ask is where does God want to use you to help someone to see clearly? Where does God want to use you to help someone else to see clearly? That maybe there's someone in your life, maybe a non-Christian or even a Christian, who you know, I, I need to talk to them and I need to speak the truth about what I see or what I know. And then I just need to pray desperately for God to open their eyes. Maybe there's someone in your life right now who you, you know, they already know the truth. It just isn't sinking in and you just need to be reminded again, pray for them, see God work, have God move to open their eyes. Wherever we find ourselves, God wants to open our eyes to see life more clearly and he wants to use us to help open the eyes of other people. So that's what I want to pray for in closing this morning. God, I pray that you would show us, first of all, we, we need to even be shown where we're viewing life in a way that's not right. That I, sometimes I'm blind even to the ways that I'm blind. And so first of all, show us this morning 
Where are we viewing life in a way that's maybe disconnected from you? And what, what, what do you want to change to help us to see it differently? To see how you're at work, to see how your word should change how we view certain situations or people, and to ultimately see through the lens of the gospel all of our lives. God, with that, I pray you'd show us uh, even now, where is it, who is it in our lives that you want to use us to help them to see clearly? Uh, maybe we've already thought about, I need to, I need to talk to that person, but I, I don't want to. pray that you give us the courage and that we know it's you who opened the eyes, not us. God, we want to see you open eyes ours and the eyes of others, so that we see you clearly, so that we see Christ and what he's done for us clearly, and so that it changes our lives. God, to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.